The scripture reading of this morning is from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. A shoot shall come out from the stalk of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide what his, uh, ear, what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall pay over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, and the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. The word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, this morning we uh, continue our series for Advent called A Weary World Rejoices. And... Uh, we're looking at these beautiful images and texts from the prophet Isaiah. Have you ever noticed how around this time of year, around uh, the holidays, people start doing seemingly strange things? I heard about a group of children who, uh, who had this wild idea that it would be okay perhaps to, uh, to, to collect some food and give that, give that food to some of the most uh, neediest families in their area. They thought maybe they could go to a local grocery store and ask if they could have some of the excess merchandise um, and, and bring it to a food bank. So they went to the local grocery store and talked to the manager and asked the store manager, could we please have some of your excess food that you're just going to throw away? We want to care for families in need this, this uh, season. And the store manager said, uh, you know, uh, what a wonderful thing that you have uh, asked and that you're doing. This is something that we used to do um, a while ago, but we had some issues in the past, and so it's no longer part of our custom. I'm sorry. There was a, a man driving down the road, and uh, he looked over and saw an old car with its hood up on the side of the road, and a, and a person standing out front in shabby clothes with his thumb out, looking for a ride, trying to hitch a ride. 
the driver who passed by uh, considered stopping. But then he remembered the familiar warnings. Don't pick up strangers. Don't pick up hitchhikers. You never know what kind of crazies are out there. I'd like to help, he thought to himself as he watched the dejected figure recede in his rearview mirror. But it's really not customary to pick up hitchhikers. You know these social customs, don't you? Don't talk to strangers. Be careful who you open up to with your feelings. Look out for number one. Care too much and people will walk all over you. We learn these social customs subtly as we grow and, uh, and we learn about how far we can extend ourselves without risking trouble, without creating, causing harm or risking harm. Then they grow, these customs grow out of our human experience with the dark side of life in human society. It's often thought of as street smarts. We need to have street smarts and follow uh, the social customs. We need to know the customs. Why? So that we can be reminded that we live in a world of sin and evil and selfishness. And as helpful as these customs might be from a practical standpoint in navigating our lives, are they really meant to be the ultimate standard by which we live our lives and our values? What happens when these imaginary rules that we live by begin to rule us? When the legitimate desire to protect ourselves from harm results in dividing us from one another, like enemy soldiers running for cover. Well, this is essentially what had happened with the nation of Israel by around the time of 740 B.C., the scholars tell us that uh, the prophet Isaiah saw where Israel was headed as a nation, and it wasn't good. At one time, the nation of Israel had been a light to all the nations. Unlike its neighbors, Israel valued interdependence in its social and religious and economic life. To be a Jew was to be passionately concerned about both the hopes and the hurts of all God's people. It was to celebrate our common connection to the true God and to work to build a society where every able-bodied person is able to do, does their fair share, but where the truly weak and vulnerable will not be forgotten. They will be taken care of in this society. Over the years, however, the tone of life in Israel deteriorated and this chasm grew between uh, members of society. The wealthiest members of society became insulated from the vast majority of the society that lived hand to mouth. The growing poor became increasingly hopeless, desperate, and even, as you can imagine, violent. And gradually, these resentments grew up between the segments of Israel's society, and in time, even religion no longer held people together. From top to bottom, Israel increasingly became a society of self-protecting, self-advancing people, alienated from one another and from the God who'd given them life. And so the, the law of interdependence was replaced by a social custom. It's everyone for themselves. Everyone for themselves. And through this society walked the prophet Isaiah. 
He shared God's grief with what had happened to the nation, their character and their culture. And in doing so, Isaiah made two stunning predictions that we see in our text. The first is that he foretold the national destruction of what would happen to Israel as a consequence of their injustices and ignoring God. And maybe about 20 years later in 722, lo and behold, the Assyrian army easily overran the northern kingdom plundered its wealth, and sold its citizens into slavery to their surprise. But then, secondly, Isaiah foresaw the coming of a leader who would gather the faithful few, the remnant out of this nation, the faithful remnant, and show them a different way, a new way forward. Most of us here in church understand something of what Isaiah tells us about this promised one. In verse 1, Isaiah says, A shoot shall come from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of its roots. What a wonderful image this is. Isaiah is predicting that the Messiah who is to come will come from the severed trunk of the family tree of Jesse. The father of King David, that royal line of leadership that had been chopped down when the Assyrians came in 722. Lo and behold, 800 years later, a remarkable child was born in David and Jesse's town, in the line of David, in Bethlehem. And when this child begins to bear these beautiful fruits, uncommon fruits of character, and inspires with his teachings fruitfulness in others, well, we know exactly what that's about. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 2 that this leader will be filled with an authority above any other because, he says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we, we remember the carpenter Jesus wading in the water in the Jordan River to be baptized. And we remember how the scripture tells us that when he was baptized, in the moment of his baptism, the spirit of the Lord in the form of a dove descended and rested upon him. And we realize that in Jesus Christ, the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled. These are some of the things that we all have known or have heard about. The one who came at Christmas. The question, though, is whether we appreciate just how fully Jesus challenged the social norms, the social customs of his day, and is our love for him changing the way you and I come at life as well? And so there are at least three social customs that Isaiah tells us that this Messiah, and by extension his followers, you and I, will come against in the new age when Christ returns. And we might as well start living there now. And the first one I will term the custom of cancel. The custom of cancel. This is the custom, you know this custom, it permits us to harden our hearts um, permanently against those who hurt us, to write them off forever, to dismiss people as irredeemable and useless because of what they have done or what they have failed to do. We see this custom all over the place in our day. 
This is the custom that avoids the hard work of forgiveness, reconciliation, civility, the kinds of things that we are called to as followers of Jesus. Do you know this custom? Have you been the brunt of it? Have you practiced it? It strikes me then that Israel had failed God time and time again. The Jews have used God's temple by the, by the time of Christ as a marketplace. They've ignored the poor. They turned the promised land in, into a playground of selfishness. What would the social customs say that God should do to Israel? Cut them off. Cancel them. Be, be done with them. They are irredeemable. Just eliminate it completely. But what does God do? What is God's response? Well, at first, he leaves them to experience some of the consequences of their own actions, kind of like a loving father uh, might do to a, a child, feel the sting of an error in hope of producing some change. But then, rather than stewing in righteous resentment, he crosses the border from heaven and earth by sending his son, Jesus Christ, into our midst to bring forth from the stump of Jesse an olive branch of peace. Isaiah tells us in verse 5, righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. That's why he does this. He is the righteous one in a world weary of evil. God doesn't live by the culture or the custom of cancel, but by the spirit of faithfulness. Here again is this word chesed, steadfast love. God does not give up on us. That's why God doesn't stop trying to reach us even if we've walked far from him. And so no matter how miserably we have failed, no matter how, how self-sealed we've become, no matter how deeply we've hurt ourselves or God's children, God refuses to brand us as a lost cause, refuses to cancel us. Like the father of the prodigal son, God looks at us with a faithful love that runs to us when we are far off, that aches to bring us home. The second custom that, uh, of the human race by which we are tempted to live or we unconsciously live, another one of our customs that God comes against, is uh, this I will call the custom of cosmetics. The custom of cosmetics. This is the notion that we form opinions about people without knowing the depth of their heart or their experience. Nothing against cosmetics um, in particular or in general. In keeping with my commitment to using alliteration in my sermon this week, I needed a word that, uh, that started with the letter C, and this was the closest one. But interestingly, the 18th century uh, socialites, as depicted in this image, were a group of folks who were known to be vain uh, women who poisoned themselves with white lead makeup. The Countess of Coventry, Maria Gunning, a society hostess renowned for her beauty, is said to have refused to stop wearing foundation containing lead even as she lay dying on her deathbed while it was killing her. Extreme example, but again, this is just symbolic of how customary it is for us to form opinions about people from the outside 
from the surface, the cosmetic, and not their heart. Perhaps an um, illustration that is, comes a little bit more closer to home. A Russian uh, novelist, Leo Tolstoy, many, many years ago, he had an experience that helped him to understand this. While out walking late one, no, one night, Tolstoy was approached by a beggar who, um, seeing the author's fine clothes, asked him if he could spare any change. Well, Tolstoy, uh, this was not what he was, his usual pattern. He would normally kind of walk by people like this and ignore such people. But on this night, he felt moved by a different spirit. Much to his dismay, however, when he searched his pockets, he realized that he had left his wallet and he didn't even have any money or even a coin to spare to this uh, poor soul. And so he said, I'm sorry, brother. I, I seem to have left my money at home. I don't have anything to offer you. And to his surprise, the man's face began to transfigure. That's quite all right, sir. You've already done something greater for me than anyone has done in years. You called me your brother. You called me your brother. About this one who is to come, Isaiah writes, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And by the way, judge doesn't mean condemn. He's not condemning the poor. He's bringing correction to things that cause poverty systemically, personally, all of it. In other words, the Messiah will not be put off by other, by other people's clothes, by bad manners, by awkward ways. We don't need white lead makeup to please our Lord. He is not dissuaded by the uniform of poverty, nor is he moved by the uniform of privilege. The God who comes to us in Jesus Christ isn't ruled by cosmetics or appearances at all. What he's drawn to is need, real human need, the needs that drive people to do the things that we do, and above all, the need in every human being to be embraced as a member of the family. Do you have that perception of people? So Isaiah predicted that someone was coming who would break the custom of cancel, who would ignore uh, the custom of cosmetics, and who would finally turn upside down the custom of conquest. And that's the third of the customs that God comes against in this text, the custom of conquest. You know this custom. It's the law of the wilderness. It's the rule of the jungle. It's why we don't live in the wilderness but in a city. Um, it's what fuels tribalism. It's the belief that at the end of the day there are eaters and there are eaten ones. You could call it the custom of Darwin, I suppose, but that doesn't start with C, so conquest sounds better. Uh, but the idea that if we don't crush, consume, or conquer first, they'll do it to us. But Isaiah says that into this world will come someone who revises this custom and establishes peace between enemies. 
The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain. What a crazy belief that natural enemies, not, to, not only conditioned enemies, would become, would be able to dwell with one another in peace. It's a bizarre idea. Rabbi uh, David Nelson likes to tell the story of, of two brothers who went to their rabbi to help them settle a long-standing, decades-long feud between the two of them. And so the rabbi got the brothers together and he got them to reconcile with one another and to shake hands. So they shook hands with one another and before they left, the rabbi said, in honor of the Jewish New Year, I would like for each of you to make a wish for the other person. And the first brother said, okay, I wish you what you wish me. And the second brother threw up his hands and said, see rabbi, he's doing it again. It's not always easy to believe that change is possible, that enemies can be turned into friends, that divided siblings can be reconciled, except that now and then people stake their lives on it. They dare to stake their lives on this vision. And that's what we saw last week with the Christmas truce of 1914 and World War I, soldiers staking their lives on Isaiah's vision. In his book, Renovation of the Heart, Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, says there are four elements uh, to transforming the customs of social life that we can practice in our own personal lives. And the first is that we learn to see ourselves as God sees us. We are blessed and not cursed. When we see ourselves as blessed, when we walk around seeing ourselves as blessed, we will do good to other people and we'll see them as blessed too. The second is that we need to abandon our defensiveness. It means we refuse to attack or withdraw. We need to be willing to be known as we really are, our good and our flaws. And that leads to the third, which is that we should get rid of all pretense, to not be who we're not, to not put on one face when we really have another, but to be genuine and authentic, to be honest about our struggles. And that's largely what our Advent groups are about this year. And the final point is to do good in society. Be a redemptive presence. Devote yourself to a life of service. Don't just stop being evil, but do good. And Willard says that when God is present in your life at the center, you're motivated to live in those transforming actions and not by the custom of conquest. And who is it that ultimately leads us there, that shows us the way? It is Jesus the Christ who is both the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God, who walks among us and becomes our light, the high mountain above us, the righteous one. We are drawn to him because of his overwhelming desire for peace and grace. And when we encounter Christ, we are moved to live according to this vision. Well, at Christmas long ago, there came into this world one who was willing to take issue with the customs of earthly kingdoms, even if that meant being punished as a traitor. 
And Jesus knew there was coming a kingdom where all the, the shallow customs of this world would pass away. In that kingdom, the cancellations, the cosmetics, and the conquests of the world will be no more. All we will see then is steadfast love, a community of brothers and sisters, and a fellowship of former enemies. Our invitation is to look towards that day, to expect it, and the way in which we do that is that somehow, sometime, at some point this week, dare to live against the customs of the world. Gracious God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for showing us the way, for the prophecy of Isaiah and, and for its fulfillment. We look forward to the day when Christ shall return and the peaceable kingdom will be complete at last and we will live in righteousness. And so we look forward to that day. Empower us and strengthen us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.